In this episode, we talk about... I looked different. My first language is Gujarati. I remember telling my parents one day that I, I want to be white. And I, I'm sure it broke their hearts a little bit in terms uh, eventually ended up in medicine, ironically, which I love. This comparison culture is disgusting and it really contributes to feeling less than and low self-confidence. She grabbed my hand and she goes, Flora, you need to give her a sibling, no ifs, ands, or buts. My name is Dr. Flora Sinha. I am a mindset coach and an internal medicine physician. Not only that, she influences positivity. She is a mom, a wife, and an amazing, amazing inspiration to all. Oh, and she's also an IVF warrior. I know for a fact that setting boundaries is seen as rude. It is seen as, you know, putting yourself first, selfish, and you don't necessarily, um, you're not necessarily considering the impact that it has on the people around you, be it your partner or be it your kids or your parents. So when it comes to boundary setting in South Asian families, like, first of all, do you think it's possible or is it really just something that, you know, is like a lot of external factors are there and it depends on your situation? Uh, boundaries is one of my favorite topics, by the way, um, just because, yes, I think it's possible regardless of culture. Now, it may differ in hardship as far as how close, physically close, like do you live with your family? Are they down the street? Are they states away? Are they across the world? Obviously, um, that poses various obstacles. But I absolutely think it's possible to hold different um, levels of boundaries with family members within the DC population. Um, I think it's essential. It's crucial. Boundaries is not selfish. They are self-care. Uh, and it's really important to practice um, holding boundaries. I think that oftentimes we feel guilty and we feel selfish. You had mentioned uh, or we're blamed for being selfish and um, not putting others first. But I think there's a balance, right? I think um, uh, living your life for other people will make you miserable almost 100% of the time. And by holding healthy boundaries, and holding boundaries does not mean cutting someone out of your life. That's not the purpose of it. Right. Holding boundaries is to um, have a healthy relationship and almost declutter your mind a little bit, decrease resentment if, if that's where your, your brain space is going to, and almost in a way open up the ability to connect with your loved ones um, in a different way because you have the ability to, because you have the brain space to, because you put down boundaries. So I think there are different ways to put up boundaries within um, the community, including your family. It just takes a little bit of practice, pivoting and guidance. Right. So I'm just curious because, you know, you do come from a similar South Asian background. How did you start on your journey of boundary setting? So my boundary setting really started when I was diagnosed with secondary infertility. And um, fertility is such a common, almost lax topic in our community. It's like, as soon as you get married, when are you having babies? As soon as you have your first, when are you popping out your second? 
if you have your second, are you going to have a third? Boy, girl, it's just, it's just so, um, uh, it's so easy to put into conversations. And I don't know if it's because they don't have anyone else, anything else to talk about, but it, it, it really did start with that because I recognized how easily someone can be triggered when the other person doesn't know what you're going through and the assumption that everyone wants children or they are able to have children or, you know, all these assumptions that we think is a social norm um, may not be true. And is it true for everyone? We can't kind of have that blanket statement. So that's when my boundary journey started, not only with my immediate family members, but with all of the, you know, they see aunties and uncles that were coming up to me asking me, oh, I, I had my first child without problems. And when it came to um, growing my family, I had difficulty without medical intervention. Um, and we, because of my mindset journey and, and the boundary settings that I did start placing not only on myself, but with others, uh, my husband and I made a difficult, but I think healthy decision to stop trying further. And so we are a beautiful family of three and I still get questions. My daughter's eight, by the way, I still get questions. Are you guys going to have more? Why not? Isn't Gia, my daughter, isn't she lonely? She needs a sibling. I mean, just as recently as a few months ago, we went to a family um, gathering and I had my immediate family members obviously know our story, but we had, you know, family friends come up and say, oh, is she your only one or is it just the one as if she isn't good enough? And so yeah. I have formulated uh, boundary statements that I practice over and over again. I'm, I'm a broken record when it comes to that question. <laughs> and um, if, you know, I have other plans that I've practiced that if someone continues to push um, a on my family planning goals. Uh, I have other statements that I have also said that, you know, either teaches them a lesson, I hope, to not pry into personal matters, um, or I hope also starts a healthy conversation about infertility and that it's not a one size fits all. Right. Do you have like a favorite go-to statement that you use that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, usually if it's just a passive comment, I say, oh, we're really happy. We're good. Right. And period. Right. I don't, it, it, you know, boundary statements need to be concise. They need to be to the point. You do, don't need to go into this whole story or explanation of why and all of this. That, that's out of guilt, right? That's out mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. I feel guilty for putting out a statement for not telling you my personal matters. Um, last, no, sorry, two Christmases ago, uh, we went to a family wedding and I had an auntie who I hadn't seen in 15 years. I mean, it's been a long time. Um, who came up to me and said, so when are you having another? Gia needs a sibling. (laughs) And I was like, oh, hi. Um, One, two, uh, we're good. We're happy. We're look at Gia. She's playing right now. We're, we're so blessed right now. And she continued to push to the point where she grabbed my hand. She goes, Flora, you need to give her a sibling. No ifs, ands, or buts. There is no other way. That's just horrible. And at that, it, it, it really, it was jarring because I don't think I've ever had anyone be so upfront mm-hmm. um, and push to that extreme. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to say retaliate. It's not a battle, but I confronted her and said, auntie, when you have infertility, there's all the ifs, ands, and buts in the world. Gia's our blessing. We're done. 
And you saw the light bulb go off in our head. And that was like my extreme statement, right? I, I, I don't open up about my infertility to anyone and everyone. Right. I am an open book, but yeah. yeah, I don't need that conversation. That's a lot of mental yeah. pressure, yeah. a lot yeah. of energy spent. But it did open up a conversation between me and her. Um, you know, they see events, uh, wedding events are multiple um, events. Um, so at the next event, she came up to me and apologized and actually asked me about infertility. And, and it was a healthy discussion and conversation that I think I, I, I saw as a positive. So, you know, it just these simple, concise statements are so important. We're good. Um, you know, I don't feel like talking about that right now. I mean, that's a matter between me and my family, me and my husband. We're really blessed. Stop. Right. Right. Yeah. Else. Silence also yeah. makes people feel a little uncomfortable. And um, you don't need to continue to have this huge explanation and practice. I think that's so important. Practice in front of a mirror. How does that sound? Does that sound um, rude or or uh, attacking? Usually not. And so get comfortable saying those concise right. statements and get comfortable with silence too. There, there's going to be a pause that they're just going to be like, oh, okay, and then move on to the next, <laughs> the next topic. Um, but yeah, concise statements are key. Yeah, I think I it's mean, a good, you know, good point because a lot of times we do, especially the culture that we come from, I think it becomes kind of second nature to be like, oh, to have that feeling of I owe them an explanation, even though you really don't. It's just such a conditioned response. So it does make a lot of like sense that you want to have that comfort with the silence. Just make your point, be comfortable with that and just let it be, you know, kind of just leave it there. Um, that's such a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Having confidence in your stance is so important when it comes to boundary setting. And once you, I, I always tell my clients when I'm coaching them on boundaries is why are you holding the boundary? Like you need to know your why and you need to have the confidence in your why in order to hold the boundary. Otherwise it's not going to feel authentic and it may not be authentic, right? You may be building a boundary out of resentment, out of anger, out of envy, which is it may not be the, the healthiest way to approach boundaries. So just really knowing your why. And for me, my boundary statement is to protect my mental health, is to protect my energy level. We don't have endless energy to expend on explanations and people pleasing. Mm -hmm. um, and especially as women who were conditioned to be yes women, um, especially in our community, it's important to know um, you know, when your energy is fleeting, when burnout is about to happen and how to recharge. And so not spending that extra energy on, uh, I, I say, unimportant conversations um, is, is important. And it, it just takes practice because the next question I get, how do I not feel guilty? Or when I said my boundary statement, it turned into a conflict. It turned into a fight. It turned into be ruminating and oh, cycling yes. over. Maybe I should have said something. I always say practice and you're going to have to pivot. I mean, we have to be flexible um, depending on the person, the situation, the environment. Is this a one-on-one -on -one intimate conversation or is this right. a massive wedding where some auntie yeah. comes up to you telling you how to family plan? Uh, so it really does depend on that. And, and it's okay 
to make mistakes. Like it's okay to say quote unquote, the wrong thing to the wrong person. And then we're self-reflect and say, Oh, maybe I shouldn't have gone into that long drawn out explanation. Or maybe I should have said one extra thing in a nicer tone with a nicer expression. Maybe I should have smiled these little things. That's why I always say practice in front of a mirror. I, my face never lies. Um, and I'm a very animated talker. And so sometimes my facial expressions will give away a, a feeling of irritation or anger, which is not what I mean. Or maybe it is. <laughs> but I, I have practice to just almost keep a straight face, maybe smile, smirk, maybe end a little, end the, the statement with a little chuckle or a laugh, being like, hey, it's not that serious, but stop. Um, all these little things, I think, take practice and, and consistency to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm just curious because um, I think it's definitely more of like a Western um, sort of concept, you know, the boundary setting, even within family members and, you know, having not too many like intrusive questions into your personal life. There are certain questions that um, my Caucasian friends don't necessarily have to deal with, with their family members. And I am curious in terms of your childhood and your memories from your childhood, like, was there any moment where you felt like, oh my God, my parents are asking questions or they're more intrusive than my peers or my classmates where you definitely like realized that, okay, like I am from a very different culture. And did you interpret that if there was any as a part of your culture or was that something you were always motivated to push back against? You know, I thought that was a norm. Um, it, it, and it was weird because within our family, you know, we didn't talk about feelings. We didn't talk about, you know, what it meant to be angry and sad. Anything that wasn't happy and grateful was right. quote unquote wrong and, right. and nothing to blame my parents. You don't know what you don't know. Right. We, right. we have, um, learned so much since then. Um, but I think from a community standpoint, right? Everyone knew each other's business. And it's like, you know, what we see on TV, like the little telephone game, you see someone doing something that's not see or not, you know, culturally appropriate, like dating, for example. Yes. And that's friends like wildfire. And within two seconds, your mom knows that your dad knows. <laughs> and I think that sense of lack of boundaries within the community was really jarring for me um, growing up, I just didn't realize I could do anything about it until, uh, you know, I, I had a little more self-confidence and really came into my own. Mm-hmm. And, um, going off of that, then were there any moments growing up? Cause I know I've had a lot, like, especially growing up here in, um, the U S where you are suddenly kind of hit with this realization that, oh yeah, I'm different than a lot of my peers just because of the fact that you come from this different cultural background. And even though you can kind of, you, you have this like ability to blend into your like South Asian Indian culture at home and with other like South Asian families families and friends and the community, but then you go out into the world, you go to school and you have this completely different um, kind of environment that you're uh, like adapting to and, you know, that ends up affecting us. So have there been any like major moments or an anecdote that you could share with us maybe about when it just hit you that like, oh yeah, um, I am different from a lot of my peers? As long as I can remember, I, I grew up in a very 
I've moved around a lot uh, within the U.S., but I primarily, um, during my elementary school, my school age, um, I grew up in a very small town in West Virginia. Um, And for those of you who don't know, West Virginia is is an overall rural state. Um, We had maybe like 10 Daisy families uh, in the town. (laughs) Um, And so, yes, primarily Caucasian uh, and Again, as far back as I could remember, I, I knew I looked different. Um, the way I spoke English, my first language is Gujarati. It wasn't English, um, so difference number one. Um, the way my parents spoke, their accent, all of those oh, things, yes. I was very, very conscious of. And not only that, I was a curvier child, um, while a lot of my Caucasian friends. Um, were thinner and could wear different things and um, had different relationships with their family, um, was able to do different things, had a little more freedom at certain times. Um, There's so many, I don't know of any specific anecdotes, but just something simple, for example, um, hair oiling. That's been within our culture for, I don't even know how long. Now it's trendy. Oh, yes. (laughs) When we were younger, going to school with an oily scalp and hair was considered dirty when I was growing up. Oh, yes. And I remember just being embarrassed about my culture when it bled into... Yes. Oh, my God. Because that's the only way. You can't get it into everywhere. Um, And so... I still re- I still remember like just being embarrassed of of what was being preached at home because I just wanted to fit in right as kids like yes. that that's our, our primary concern um, and so I, I remember telling my parents one day that I, I want to be white and I, I'm sure it broke their hearts a little bit because they're trying so hard to instill culture and now that I'm older and have my own child like I understand how important it is to really um uh, instill cultural roots into to you and, and teach everybody and it's also more culture or societally accepted now um but yes the oily hair thing was just and then even um my friends would come over our house and we would have the, the spice smell because my mom was always cooking. Mm-hmm. That was normal to me. Yes. Yeah, but knowing that my house, quote unquote, smells, it was really, a, a again, an embarrassment to me because it was different. Yeah. When uh, I wish someone taught me to celebrate those differences and spread that difference, right? And right. to use that as a point of education. Um, but... Again, you don't know what you don't know. So my mission now really difficult to you know navigate that as a child because your worldview is so influenced by a lot of external factors. And I think for me, there were a lot of moments um, as a kid. Like so, for me, I moved to India when I was a preteen, and I had a lot of issues where um, I never was Indian enough, nor was I like American oh, enough. Yes. So in both classrooms, <laughs> I just felt like an outsider. And of course, eventually, I learned to navigate that um, as I got older, and I think more so like when I reached college. So for a long time, I just like felt this sort of like you know dissonance within me. 
but um, it, it did take a lot of conscious effort to recognize those elements. And like you said, like in mindset transformation, you know, you consciously like make those efforts. And I'm just curious, what was your starting point where you're like, you know what, I am done like being ashamed of this. This is my culture and I'm proud of it. Probably in college. Um, I also met a lot of, so a little background, I moved out of West Virginia in the middle of high school. Um, so I did two years of high school on the West Coast and then um, uh, moved away again for college. But I was in a larger environment, metropolitan cities, non-rural areas. So in college is, I think, where I met a lot of people that looked like me and talked like me and danced like me. And I, I, I will have to say, you know, even while growing up, I did feel safe and almost at home when we all, we were doing cultural stuff like celebrating mm -hmm. Bali, Garba, mm -hmm. Navratri, yeah. you know, doing Garba. Um, dance was somewhere where I felt free. I felt safe. I felt me like me. I didn't realize it at that time. I just knew I loved it for whatever reason. Absolutely. So in college, um, that's when I was like, oh, I like this. I feel safe. I feel happy. I feel connected. I feel um, not isolated. Grounded. Uh, and that's actually, along with a few friends, I started a Garba Ross dance team at my university, um, and which is still ongoing today, oh, wow. you know, <laughs> however many years later. Uh, I think they're Bollywood more than Garba Ross, but still, it, it really did start, I think, I hope, um, a sense of inclusion that no matter, you know, what you look like or what your background's from, you have a place wherever you are. You just need to find yes. it and accept it and whatever makes you happy, go for it. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I can totally relate to that as well because I grew up in a city, even though I've been in the Bay Area um, up until right before I started high school, I was in a much smaller city and we did not have as many Indian or South Asian families. We had a lot of other Asians and like East Asians and, you know, all of these different kind of people. And there was some kind of overlap in terms of culture, but there was always like a sense of displacement because certain things that where my parents would be like particularly strict and conservative about because of their upbringing and their background, I could see like my other Asian American friends they did not have the same kind of approach to those things. So there was a lot of overlap, but there was also this kind of sense of like, oh, I feel alone. But um, when we moved um, right before I started high school, I went to a community, like we moved to a different city, which had way more Indians and like South Asians in general. And that was when, for me, I think the first time that I was like, oh, hey, like I can actually openly enjoy the things that I enjoy about being Indian. Like I can watch these Indian movies and, and openly d talk about it with my friends. I can, I can do all this. And it takes a certain level of kind of finding your place among the community and, you know, where, wherever you live to get to that point as well, I think. Um, so yeah, I, I totally get what you mean by that. And it makes a lot of sense that, you know, it takes time to kind of fit into that as well. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm going to segue into mental health because like that's like a huge issue in South Asian communities. And I think especially with us um, millennials, it's definitely more of like a watchword that's emerging, like even in the country of India, um, the younger generation, the current Gen Z, um, all of them are very 
comfortable about at least talking about the fact that either they're in therapy or like it's not taboo anymore so the culture has evolved in india um of course not all over india because you know the demographics are so vastly different but especially in the metropolitan areas that is one of the bigger benefits i think where mental health is kind of out of the open but there still is a lot of misunderstanding between the generations like you know the understanding that the parents have and the understanding that the kids have and um obviously i was just wondering how you know you kind of came to terms with the fact that certain cultural elements were impacting mental health and how you had did you have these discussions with your family or did you just work on them for yourself um i'm just curious about your mental health journey that's one of the reasons why i started building boundaries was because of my mental health um I know that my family will drop everything and be there for me at any point in time. That being said, I think it's important to recognize everyone's strong points. So I wouldn't go to, for example, my accountant for law advice, or I wouldn't go to my doctor for accounting advice, right? And so in that same breath, my parents um, didn't have the bandwidth to develop the emotional intelligence that we've been privileged to have the space and education Mm -hmm. for. So that's when I started building those boundaries after recognizing like, I, I can't reach out to them when I just found out my IVF transfer didn't take or I'm miscarrying. Like they weren't the people that would say the right things for me to comfort me and so i had those people they just weren't my family like weren't my parents right i went to my parents for other things and they still provided comfort and they still provided support in various ways um and and that was again a big turning point in my own journey did i outwardly say i'm holding a boundary no like no one wants to hear that um i just naturally started doing it i would share important things about my life about gia at the time about important developments about my infertility if if i needed to but when it came to emotional support um I I didn't turn to them. After having Gia, uh, I did go through postpartum depression. I think now it's more generalized as perinatal depression, but uh, postpartum depression and anxiety. Um, And again, it's not something I I turn to my parents for. Mm -hmm. I I did ask people what I needed at the time. Um, And obviously with the help of therapy and good support from my partner, um, it was, and even being a medical professional, I didn't recognize what I was going through until probably six months after I gave birth. I I, I was like, oh, this is hard. Um, Being a mom is hard. Yeah, being a working mom is hard. I I just continued to push through because that was expected of me, right? Mm -hmm. It was expected Mm -hmm. of me to work full time, to have a a child. My husband at the time was going through training himself. I was running a household, battling an LA commute. It was was a lot. And then I recognized like, wait, I'm not dealing with this. Okay, this is now bleeding into my daily activities. This is now becoming, um, I wouldn't say debilitating, but close Mm -hmm. to the point where I need to find help from someone 
that specializes in this, um, that knows the verbiage and is well-versed um, in this. And unfortunately, you know, my my family wasn't it. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. But right. I, I do want right. everyone to realize, like, it's okay um, that if your parents aren't your everything go-to sets of people. Um, it's just important to recognize, you know, that um, you're still loved and you're still supported and um, you're still well taken care of. But, you know, start building your village of who you could turn to. Um, we don't openly talk about mental health. It's not like I'm announcing um, diagnoses, but I think it's more accepted as we talk about mental health as a topic. Um, and again, that was my own boundary that I put up for myself. That is not something that I wanted to openly uh, or bluntly share with them just because I just don't think it would connect on the receiving Mm -hmm. end and I may be triggered instead. Um, but we do speak about mental health as a whole, um, within the community, social media, uh, that I think it's just not completely a hundred percent understood on their end, but better, better understood and, and, and more accepted as a actual medical diagnosis, which it is, um, right. versus like a, you know, a, a quote unquote crazy person, which was what was said for the longest time. Yeah. I think a lot of the stigma does stem from that, especially when you look at it from a cultural perspective, like whether it's been, uh, you know, Indian movies or just general Indian media, the way that a lot of times, um, you know, any kind of mental health issues portrayed, it just goes straight to these like very negative terms of like insanity. And um, so I think, like you said, that makes it more difficult when you are trying to have these discussions in your family and it comes up like when anything, oh, it's mental health, it kind of just kind of caps it and there's just so much stigma that comes associated with it so whereas like um what you said i think you know it's it's a good point um that you made about like you don't have to make it like a a definitive diagnosis rather just kind of share the experience um and yeah we're definitely privileged in the fact that you know we do have this emotional capacity and understanding that maybe our parents and previous generations did not have um But with that being said, though, um, I wanted to understand a little bit more about your um, mental health journey in terms of, you know, from from like this more cultural perspective, because what I've noticed both um, from my own personal journey, as well as, you know, talking to other friends who've been through similar things is that a lot of times we associate, especially growing up, you know, um, in like a, a country that is not like where our parents are from. I think what ends up happening is that we associate a lot of like, um, you know, things related to the upbringing and environment as like being a cultural thing. And when at some point when you grow up, you kind of realize, hey, um, there is a difference there. Like, again, going back to the boundaries there, it's not so much a cultural thing. It's just something that's been so normalized in the culture. So did you ever have moments for yourself where you were starting to identify oh yeah, hey, these are not necessarily cultural things. These are actually like a, you know, it's kind of like toxic patterns or just generally, you know, patterns that are repeating that I don't want to carry forward. And, you know, what was your experience with, you know, um, how you overcame that and how you decided to, you know, um, go forward with your understanding of it? Um, I think we all 
grow up with these societal checkboxes for our life. Mm-hmm. And within the Desi community specifically, um, you know, you are considered successful if and when you are well-educated, get a good paid job, are married, you have children, multiple children. Um, You have a lot of the materialistic desires that everybody else... For me, that was the definition of success that was described to me and shown to me to a certain extent. Um, I still remember when I was in college... uh, my, my dad's a physician and never really pushed me to go into medicine, but that's all he knew. So, you know, there were all these passive comments like, you know, if you were a doctor, then if you get married and you are a doctor and you have kids, then. And it's just like when this happens, then you can coast through life and be happy. Uh, and I still remember in college. So I entered college as a business major because I wanted to do the opposite of what my parents wanted me to do. So I'm like, let's try this out. I realized I was horrible at it and I didn't understand any of it. So I slowly kind of, uh, within my own decision-making process in terms, uh, eventually ended up in medicine, ironically, which I love. Um, But at that point in time, I remember thinking to myself, like, I have the ability and capability to make my own decisions and my success is so much more than these societal checkboxes that I don't know who made up, but has been made up for me. And that was even, I actually extended my college career to do an extra degree in psychology because uh, I wasn't 100% sure if I wanted to go into medical school. So I actually deferred applying, which drove my parents crazy. Like, oh, I'm behind, behind in my timeline that I get, again, I don't know who made it for me. <laughs> and um, it, it was just so interesting at that time, but I still went against the quote unquote grain, which doesn't seem like a huge step, but within my little world of what was taught and what was again, taught to me as being the norm, um, I did what felt right for me and the timing felt better for me. And um, that kind of even went into, again, my infertility journey, the decision to stop trying to have more children was probably the best decision that we have made. It was this weight lifted off of our shoulders. We grounded ourselves in gratitude and we are living our best life as a beautiful family of three. Now, again, according to my checkboxes, I should have multiple kids that are two to four years apart. And, you know, I, 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 and again, that was just letting go of that, this is how life should be mindset and it's not a one size fits all. And I I continue to do that. Um, Even now, as I start my coaching practice, I started this about a year and a half ago. um, And again, the idea that, oh, you met that checkbox of being a doctor. Now you can coast. Well, I met all my initial checkboxes. And then I remember thinking to myself, now what? Like, is this it? Like, do I just live happily ever after? But I'm bored. I'm burnt out. I'm going through infertility. Like, I, I'm not. Am I a failure? 
Mm-hmm. And all these questions started coming up and it's not this all or nothing mindset just needs to go. And that's not only within the Indian community, that's just in general, general. that you can learn to live in the gray. Like you can go through infertility and want more kids and still have gratitude with the child that's in front of you, or you still can do a career shift, but still, you know, really lean into what you've worked hard to do. And you, you could you can feel and do both. And that wasn't necessarily taught to me. I, I was just like this formula, this format for life, for happiness, which we know now that it, it's not a formula. Your formula is what you make of it. Your timeline is your own. This comparison culture is disgusting. Oh, yes. And it really contributes to feeling less than and low self-confidence and it's really important to, again, ground yourself in gratitude, look in the mirror and really look at your own checkboxes. What, what, what are your life checkboxes? What are you and why are they there? What is your why? What's your purpose for having those checkboxes? Now, some of it is logistical, right? Like you want to make money so you can put food on the table and be comfortable. Mm -hmm. You, you know, want a nice car because you have a long commute and you want to be comfortable. Like those are just, that's okay. But it's just a matter of, are you waiting for those checkboxes to be happy? Mm-hmm. Are you waiting to fulfill these formatted checkboxes to quote unquote coast in life, which does not exist, by the way? Um, it, it's important to ask yourself those questions instead of listening to these, you know, one size fits all formatting. Absolutely. And I think it was one, um, I mean, when you were talking, one thing that just came to mind is I had this discussion with my husband recently where um, we were kind of talking about how this comparison culture contributes to not just us feeling frustrated, but the inability to actually feel happy for someone. And I think a lot of us, you know, we move through life and especially in the South Asian culture, we um, can move through life looking at different, you know, successes, especially on Instagram and anywhere else. And I think that comparison culture is so ingrained that in your mind, you're like, oh, my God, these people are doing so much than me. Um, I'm not, you know, I can do these things. Why am I not doing it? Or if I can not do these things, like you don't really judge what your capacity is. All you see is, oh, this person is doing it. So I should be able to do that. Or this person is not even as good as me. But you know what? I should be able to do that. Like you start Mm -hmm. putting other people down to make yourself feel better and like kind of rationalize that in your mind. And it just I think a lot of people underestimate the level of toxicity that it actually brings to your system you know it's just like the stress and living with that sort of negativity and it it was just like so interesting like how that simple act of you know constant comparison especially if you know people are academically pressured when they were little kids I personally was like privileged in that sense you know I was kind of encouraged like whatever you're good at but make sure you're the best at it (laughs) you know so like it was kind of like that um but it, it it was something that I personally noticed especially like among high achievers like it was really hard for me to have a conversation with them because it would always be seen as like negative Yes. And they would like put you down and you just don't want to be around them. So it's like is something wrong with me that I'm not able to talk to a lot of my peers or what is going on. And then you kind of start to realize and you empathize and you start to understand. And but it's a lot of work to do on one side. You know, I think as a culture, we need to have that awareness. And if anyone is listening to this and they recognize that within themselves, like 
where can you start your healing journey? Like just, you know, briefly, I know it's a very extensive, you know, process, but in terms of mindset transformation, like where can our listeners start? So first and foremost, I think it starts with self-reflection really figuring out what is your now look like? Where are you now? What does your inner voice sound like? Is Mm -hmm. it constantly self-deprecating? Do you have something to combat that? I work really hard with my clients um, forming reactive affirmations. We've all heard of affirmations, right? The generalized ones, which, which work, right? I am strong. I'm capable. I can do hard things. Those are things that I say to myself on the daily, but What happens when your negative voice gets in the way? Like, who are you to start a podcast? Right. Who are you to do a career transition after working in medicine for 10 years? Like, who do you think you are? But having a reaction, right? Having your objective voice, like my objective flora voice will talk to my negative voice and say, like, I'm a badass. Like, I can totally do both. It's not going to be easy, but here I am, right? Mm -hmm. I can totally um, start a podcast. Why? Because I want to make others feel less isolated. Like, know your why. I think it's important to do a lot of soul searching in the beginning. The healing journey and the mindset transformation journey never stops. So as soon as you're coasting, that is a sign that you need to pivot because there's going to be something that's going to throw you off your track. And this is speaking from personal experience. Like I, again, I've talked about boundaries. I'm a boundaries queen. I love boundaries. I'm good at it. I practiced it. But as soon as I get overly confident, something knocks me on my butt and I'm like, Oh my God, I got to like go back to the drawing board. But that's what makes it exciting, right? Because that means you're growing and you're progressing. So I say start with your baseline. Start with your now. It's really important to know what your jumping point is to get to the next level, whatever that may be. Right. Absolutely. I think it's one of those things where people think like once you start your mental health journey, you have to feel fine at the end of it. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it's like a lifelong journey. Um, in a lot of ways, you just kind of reach different steps on that scale of fine. And some days it is two steps back, you know? So I think just like understanding that and starting the journey irrespective would be super helpful if, you know, any of our listeners are looking to, you know, go on this mental health journey. And uh, And I think of it just, just so I can add, I think of it as like not a vertical line, but a horizontal one. So in the middle is like your content self. And on each extreme is like anger, envy, and joy, and excitement. How can you feel what you're feeling, right? Regardless of where you are on the spectrum, and then bring yourself back down to like the content, satisfied, self. So you're not taking steps back. You're just feeling upset. You're feeling frustrated. That's okay. But are you going to let that dictate your day? Or are you going to let that dictate your decisions, your mindset? Or are you going to work towards bringing yourself back to the middle, acknowledging what you're feeling, and move forward? And so I think that's important for everyone to know that it, it, it's not regression. You're still progressing as long as you're acknowledging and, and taking necessary steps to kind of get out of that rut. Okay. I think that's like a really beautiful way to put it. Um, and I think Nanny had a couple of questions yes. on mental health. Um, 
So, I mean, um, you talked about quite a bit of the things that we already, like, we actually wanted to ask you about specifically. Um, but one thing that I actually wanted to ask you, you know, um, as a follow-up is that maybe either as a personal experience or based off of some of the individuals that you've worked with, um, what are some of the more, like, prominent issues, um, stemming from a, like, sociocultural place when it comes to addressing a lot of, you know, um, some of the obstacles or rather to achieve um certain career goals or certain personal milestones be it like you know oh i want to like you know get into residency by this time or in terms of career or in terms of mental health like you know um you earlier did mention timelines and how there are certain like checklists and timelines in place and i know that a lot of my friends and i um you know some of the people who are in my village um we kind of remind ourselves that hey it's your timeline it's different from everybody else's so what what are some of the ways that you um find you know as a pattern that constantly re-emerges and a lot of it you know stemming from this um kind of like socio-cultural norm and what advice do you have to our listeners on that front and how to tackle that first of all Amy, i'm really happy to hear that you do have a community around you who respects each other's timeline i know that wasn't the norm when i was going through uh medical school and training so i that's like that really makes my heart happy <laughs> that you have surrounded yourself by those types of people now um as far as these norms i think social media even though i'm on social media even though that's my primary platform i think it's important to recognize that social media really does delve into our subconscious. I've been um, there before and I have to like recognize when that's happening where everyone is posting highlights. And I would almost go as far as saying when you see people in public in the like at a party for example you're also seeing a highlight right you're also mm -hmm. seeing a very small version of their life and this comparison culture even though most of my feed is like oh don't compare yourself oh not your timeline like quotes are one thing but truly embodying it is a completely different thing so it's important, I think, to really start with your social media feed. Like, what are you consuming? What are you passively consuming? For example, Instagram, right? They have these curated feeds according to the algorithm, according to what you gravitate towards, according to what you spend time on, click on, so on and so forth. What is your purpose on social media? Why are you on Instagram? Right? Are you on Instagram to connect with friends, to get recipes, to get um, childcare tips or child rearing tips? Cool. Now, how many accounts about child rearing are you actually following? How many accounts for cooking are you following? How many like inspirational quotes are you getting fed every day? What are you doing with those curated feeds that are popping up? Are you pausing and actually implementing it? Are you making those recipes? Are you implementing these child rearing tips? Or are you saying, oh, cool, that's a good idea. Like, move on. Right? There, there's a clear difference within that purpose. So I always advise people to do a social media clean out from time to time. Write down your purpose. Why are you on Instagram? Why are you on YouTube? Why are you on TikTok? Whatever social media platforms you're on. Why are you on there? 
and look through the thousands. I've had one person that had like, she was not a public account. She had, I think, she was following over like 1,500 people. Oh, wow. Like, who, who are you following? Go through your purpose. And she's like, oh, I like keeping up with celebrity news. Cool. Do you need to keep up with all 50,000 of them? Right? Is there a centralized place that, you know, can maybe give you the updates and it kind of keeps you in the loop? Do you need to follow each individual person? Like, it, these are, there's no right answer, but these are healthy questions to ask yourself. Same thing. I had someone else say, hey, I really like um, this travel blog that I follow. And this person posts um, local new restaurants and places to try activities, so on and so forth. And then she's laughs and she's like, I don't think I've tried any of them though. I still have yet to go to this new restaurant that they posted a year ago. Delete, take that person off. That account does not need to be in your life. It's clutter. Mm -hmm. And so again, but in a deeper sense, it delves into your subconscious and tells you you're less than, or you should be going to this new restaurant. Why don't I have time to do this? Because you're human and not a robot. I saw someone bought a new house and they're like curating it as an all white, beautiful, neutral tone, blah, blah, blah. Why can't I do that? Well, it's because you have two young kids and it's just not your season to have all white couches, right? It's little things that really delve into our self-subconscious. I will tell you a personal story. It's almost a little embarrassing, but I'm an anxious traveler just because I want to make sure like I get everything and cook everything and like, you know, I have all my options, but I caught myself stressing over my travel, my, my airport outfit. I have never cared initially about what I wore to the airport. I wanted to be comfortable. That was my primary purpose. But then in the last five years, I've had a lot of influencer friends who are dear friends of mine pop up and be like, this is my airport fit. This is my travel fit. This is what I wear. I wear a $200 outfit, but I'm comfortable. And then it started delving into my subconscious. Like I still wanted to be comfortable, but I wanted to look cute and I wanted to post. And I, it's Again, it, it wasn't on the surface. I didn't realize it. And then I recognized, like, who cares? Like, right. I, again, my purpose is I want to be comfortable. Right. But who am I, who am I dressing for? <laughs> who am I looking really cute for? Like, I want to feel comfortable right. and warm. And so it's important to really self-reflect and kind of let go of that, the societal norm and that subconscious delving that, Instagram, whatever, pick your platform does. And even the best of us kind of fall prey to it. Yeah. Um, Do you think that this is more prevalent with women or in comparison to men? Or do you think like that there is like no difference between the two? Because something tells me that, you know, as women, we tend to have different priorities. There is this, um, at least for me, like when I see certain things, I think it triggers this sort of memory that we're always taught to be presentable. You're taught to be a certain way. Um, you are inadequate if you're not like to that level or your husband's going to leave you if you're not that way. Like, you know, all yeah. of them. 
cultural conditioning things, which I think contribute to a lot of this, you know, toxic, um, you know, mindset when it comes to a comparison in terms of like appearance or, you know, how we present ourselves in social media. And I was just curious because a lot of times I'm not sure if, you know, at least men in the Daisy community feel that way. I don't know the data um, between the two, but given all the reasons that you just mentioned, I would assume that um, those who identify as women fall prey a little bit more. Uh, but that being said, you know, it may change according to age. I think you right. know, our preteen teen population, uh, regardless of gender, it, 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 there's a lot of impact that, that they take on um, that they don't quite recognize. Um, so I think that differs depending on age range and maturity level. But yeah, I agree with you. I think we have this pressure as women to, again, our checkboxes, right? These yeah. societal norms that really, who needs to look cute for the airport? Like, <laughs> right. again, if that's important to you, my, by all means, like... <laughs> It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's important to really self-reflect and make sure that you're not being influenced by things that make you feel more cluttered and more stressed. And if that is having a messy house, as you can see behind me, my daughter's Legos and we're doing projects behind me, it's okay. Like, I wish I had a beautifully curated office. It's not my season and that's okay. Maybe in a few months, but right now, it's it, it, like top camera. So. <laughs> I think I shared a video with Kirti recently of a momfluencer talking about Oh, oh, this is my this is my morning like drop off um, like nursery drop off fit, and I shared it with her, and I was like, "Hey, you should do like a real version of this and show them like, oh, hey, this is what I actually look like when I go to drop my kids off at school." Um, because yeah, like you know, it's it's just a lot of these unrealistic expectations that you see on social media. Um, sometimes I think people don't recognize that it is like one of those um, it, when you are on social media because the specific reel that she sent me is from a very prominent influencer there is pressure to put out content oh, yeah. so sometimes like it's just not even real it's just content for the sake of content and right. I think recognizing that is like a big thing aspect of it too absolutely yeah. and this is most people's livelihood right the content that we are consuming um you know posting a link to a beautiful outfit that they wore to the airport gives them commission this is how they are earning money and if you are not in that space or if that is not your purpose then again maybe backtrack a little bit and self-reflect and say okay do I need to look like this yes. when I drop off my kids? Um, or, no! And, and if you are, that's okay too. Yeah. Right? I just want to make sure. Like, it, it, yeah. it is all okay. It's just important to recognize the impact that it's having on you as a consumer, not the creator. And so I go on to social media to create and to connect, but I'm human. So I also give myself the bandwidth to consume within a limit and it's time for me to do a social media cleanup after that airport incident but i i you know it's important to kind of keep up with that that's part of self-care that's part of mindset 
Right, absolutely. Um, I just want to quickly deviate a little bit. So we talked about, you know, the kind of obstacles that women, especially um, from the culture, like kind of face in terms of, um, you know, whether it's social media or from a cultural perspective in terms of how they have to look. But um, from your experience or like, again, uh, with any of the clients that you might have worked with, what, what do you think are some of the more major obstacles in terms of like um, career growth or like people kind of leaning? Sometimes you know um i think you did touch upon it earlier how there is this kind of idea that oh you need to be uh, married and have this many kids and you kind of have to like cap at that and that is like you're happily ever after so it's it's discouraged when a woman says oh i want to grow my career or i want to be independent and my focus is not on relationships or you know um having kids at this moment and um you know so what, what do you think are some of the more prominent like obstacles in when it comes to that especially from like you know our cultural perspective yeah um i remind myself and my clients often that you can have it all but maybe not all at the same time um because the the fact is biologically we have a clock and that's not something that we can argue about it sucks but that is, that's biology, that's science. That being said, um, everything that you mentioned about, so let me rewind. Traditionally, as an Indian woman, we run the household, right? Then it bloomed into, we need to be educated and run the household. And then we need to be educated, rear children, run the household. Those are unrealistic expectations in the modern day. To do it all by yourself, I'm gonna say is impossible, at least happily. To do all of this happily and with content is impossible. Grow your village, like delegate, get help. Your partner needs to be involved. They are not, you know, the their purpose is not to work and you to do everything else. And I'm talking about in the traditional male, female roles um, or husband, wife roles. Um, but uh, I think even as recently, I just posted about this, I think last week. So I was traveling um, for a number of days and decided to extend my trip because I haven't had a solo trip by myself <laughs> in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it was, again, I extended it by three days. It wasn't a big deal. I talked to my husband, such as like, I got this, you do you. Um, I just I was just spending time with my parents uh, one-on-one, which is rare because usually the grandchild and the siblings and everyone you know else has yeah. Role when during our visit, and this was a Friday where I had turned my phone off because I wanted to just unplug, and I turned my phone back on to no less than twelve messages from the plumber, from the dog walker, from my babysitter, from from everyone in my village, and I'm like, what is going on? I I turned off my phone for thirty minutes, and the world blew up in LA. And so I text my husband who was busy at work. He does procedures in the hospital. So he was in a procedure, didn't have access to his phone. And I was flustered. And in that time period, um, I was with my parents and my in-laws and extended family. And I was expressing my frustration because it was just a lot to take in. And I wasn't physically there to kind of just handle everything. Mm-hmm. And I said something like, you know, Sanjay's home. 
And he delegated and planned all of this out and scheduled whatever we needed to get scheduled. And I'm like, I'm just, it's, it's an hour. Like, I don't understand why this can't happen. Like I could have done it and I would have done it. And the immediate response from all three people, my mother-in-law, my aunt, and my mom, were, it's because you're a woman. Ah. And I'm like, I, so you're saying he's not capable or not smart enough or, so I remember laughing and I'm saying, so I don't understand. Uh, why isn't he capable? Like these gender norms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are huge obstacles. And it's again, same, the same, it's, oh, I didn't even know it was a thing, right? Mm-hmm. I thought we were doing well, delegation and equal partner opportunities when it comes to running the household. But even that is a current obstacle of that expectation of the woman is capable or has more ability to balance more things because we're wired that way is completely false we just do it more because it's expected of us because it's been ingrained into us there was a recent study that i actually saw um that women aren't better caretakers it was a thought that we were wired differently, which we are to a certain extent, but we're wired differently. Therefore, we're more nurturing and we're able to bathe our kids and put them to sleep and feed them and, and they don't cry as much. And the study showed that that wasn't true. It's because we do it 300 times more. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the same when it comes to, you know, the um, traditional stereotypical gender roles. Uh, men don't have a disability they have the same ability as we do to schedule and delegate and run and share um chores and and things on our to-do list so i I just think that's really funny that even our moms who i I, and i I think it's funny because my mother-in-law is incredibly progressive my aunt is incredibly traditional and my mom is somewhere in the middle all three of them have the same reason (laughs) like if you're the woman of course you have the ability to do it or the capability it's just just really funny but i think there we do have a lot of work to do um and by talking about this and having conversations i hope will Again, that light bulb. I hope that light bulb goes off and and anyone and everyone. I'm going to kind of just be open and honest here um, with my own experience. So when I I moved to the UK um, after marriage, so my husband works for the NHS here. His schedule is all over the place, neonatologist. So he has like a lot of night shifts. And I think I was mentally prepared because I have a lot of doctors in my family. So I knew what it was. You know, I was was marrying him, not the doctor. So it it was kind of like that would be understanding. But when, you know, we got married and then we moved and, everything I think it was just one of those things where you realize like nature versus nurture women are nurtured differently you know we actually I think that so-called hardwiring is because of the way that we're nurtured and some things like I just realized even if I my husband has the best intentions like he likes to you know um, pitch in and all of these things at home and 
I've noticed that no matter how many times like he tries, there's some things that just don't click <laughs> the same way that we think. But it takes practice, right? And I think yep. um, if there are any like male members listening to this, um, or any husbands particularly, more um, particularly, it, it's okay if you don't get it right the first time. It takes a lot of practice to kind of get there. What matters is your intention. So as long as you have that intention, like we understand culturally, like you know, there's it puts them at a disadvantage to equal partner, and we have more of that advantage as you know biological females, just the way we're nurtured. And of course, like that wiring of so many years as children is for us is very different from how they are wired and how they are, you know, just kind of pushed into it. So for me, like when I got married and that was kind of a bit of a shock, a culture shock for me, because at the time when I moved, like before um, I moved out of India, I had my own small business and I was like, oh, this is fine because I have a set number of clients. I can pursue this after marriage and um, um, it, it, it will be fine, like, you know, because I can do it online. It was like a publishing business. So I could do it online. I could have my meetings online and everything. But when I felt pregnant, which was, I think, a few months after, I realized that my body took change, like, completely. I didn't have any nausea for, like, the first few weeks. So I was like, hey, this is, like, really cool, at least the first few weeks after I found out. And then I was like, okay, this is really cool. I can just, like, do this. I even, like, went on a hike with my husband in Manchester somewhere. And I was like, okay, this is, like, awesome. The next week, I just felt flat. I was like nausea, vomiting. I, I couldn't even open the fridge because the smell was like so overwhelming. Two weeks of that, and I was like, okay, I'll just like get by somehow. And like, um, bless my parents because like they understand the immigrant life, and they were like, okay, like hire somebody to help you. You know, they'll help you guys out. Um, you guys are starting new, so like try to find someone to cook and all of that. And you know, I tried, but it, again, it was a white majority area, so we couldn't really get someone who you know were cooking things that we could actually eat, or even like I could eat because I had a lot of like preferences at the time, and I was just like very incredibly nauseous three months I think three weeks after that what happened was I just couldn't get up like it wasn't even the nausea I, it wasn't anything I don't know what it was I wasn't diagnosed but I just was in bed bedridden and I remember feeling like I'm supposed to be able to do it all what happened like I cannot even do my online business like I'm not physically getting up and going to work I have it easy mm -hmm. I can't even like continue with the clients and I started cutting my clients because I was like this is crazy like I don't know what's happening I'm not sure it could be antenatal depression from the way it was because it only lasted like the first trimester and um like I think 20 weeks or so and then after that it just lifted so I'm assuming like that could be what it is but no official diagnosis mm -hmm. but I just I couldn't get up I couldn't like do anything physically it, it was like one of these things where I was shocked and we're all always told that you are wired to do this you're conditioned to be a mom you're conditioned to do these things but I was like how come nobody told me about how hard pregnancy can be and then yeah. on the flip side you see other people who are like 30 weeks pregnant and hiking and all of this and like how are you doing this and I remember feeling this immense sense of like failure because I was like I can't do it all and that's when I decided that I was going to be a stay-at-home mom and just like stop all my clients at least until I felt better and it was one of those things where I was just like you know what 
this is not for me. I can't, I can't juggle everything. And I dropped the last client that I had, I think during my sixth or seventh week of pregnancy. So, uh, sorry, like the seventh month of pregnancy. And it was just, I think the most satisfying thing, but ironically, like, I think after, of course, um, there was no pressure from a direct family, but people who don't necessarily know you very well, your like peers, your friends, all of them are working, at least in today's age. And I remember felt uh, like I had this sense of like, why am I not able to do this? All of them, and a couple of them actually had kids soon after, and they were like my age group. And I was like, if they can do this, what's wrong with me? And there were a couple of family members that were like, you know what, it's okay that you're like this right now. And again, like these aren't like like super close family members. They're people who don't really know me or like what I was doing. And they were like, okay, it's okay for now, but you can get back into the game after like a year, you know? And like, okay, but I'm not sure if I can. (laughs) Because again, I am an immigrant in a new country. I don't have a village yet. I have to do everything myself and I can't even create a village because the culture here is so different. Um, You know, and I used to think, oh, like the UK is very similar to American culture. No, it's not. And it's just like, so like I had that culture shock on top of it. So just navigating everything. And I, I think it was one of those things where you realize like, Sometimes, depending on your body, like not all women are wired the same. Each person's body, their hormones, everything is so different. And if you are feeling differently in your journey, it's okay. Like it's it's totally fine. Like you can just understand yourself, understand your body because you like you said, mental health is first. Your mental health absolutely matters because you know if the primary caregiver is happy and mentally healthy, it actually like translates in so many ways to other members of the family, even if those family members don't know yet. So even if they're not encouraging it, if any of the listeners out there are like, you know, feeling this, please like do start somewhere on your mental health journey, because I think it's absolutely important. I also want to add that, um, I think it's funny because I think we've all said it at some point during this conversation that the norm is what we see on social media. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not those people that are hiking at, like, I also had a miserable pregnancy as well, so I completely understand. Um, But yeah, the people that are like, oh, I love being pregnant. I'm glowing. And I'm like, I'm glowing because I'm sweating. And I'm like, I just got (laughs) done throwing up. And this is not okay. I don't like being pregnant. But again, who said that was the norm? Who said either one of them is a norm? Yeah. Right? I, I think it's important to recognize that just because it's posted doesn't mean everyone else is feeling it. So uh, I really do. Again, the more I talk to others one-on-one and even within my patients, right, I see a spectrum. I'm a primary care physician, so I, I see a spectrum of, of patients. But Everyone is so different, just like you said. There is no norm when it comes to your body type um, and your experience with uh, pregnancy, childbirth, marriage, all the social norms. Um, There is no norm. And there's just something that's traditionally accepted and Mm -hmm. posted (laughs) in the modern day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
it's definitely like one of those things where, you know, recently I think on social media, um, coming back to, you know, the sort of misinformation or information that is spread on social media, I think I, I shared a couple of reels with Nimi before, I think um, related to some of these so-called hormone doctors or hormone specialists and um, their take on how women can't have it all. And while I, some of it I understand because I personally had my own journey of understanding what I had to let go and what not to because my body and my health came first. Um, I did find some of the information out there a little problematic because it does reach the wrong crowds, right? And especially culturally when, you know, a lot of women are encouraged to either be, if you work extensively, you're a bad mom. Or if you don't go to work at all, you're not doing enough. You're not contributing as much as any other person. Like, you know, there's just no winning in this argument. And with all of this sort of misinformation out there, I just wanted to know what your take was on the influence of hormones, like just generally, uh, you know, they say the women's cycle, at least in the specific reel that we saw is so different that we're not meant to be productive in the last two phases, things like that. And I'm just like curious what your take is on that and, you know, how women can at least feel, I guess, um, how, how do they suss out for themselves, whether, you know, it is for them, it is not for them or what, you know, how do you just protect yourself from the pressure of society and misinformation online? Yeah. Um, a large topic. Uh, <laughs> medical misinformation has run rampant for a while now, but really became out of control when the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Um, and vaccine misinformation is a different topic, but when it comes to women's health, uh, whenever you do see a, a TikTok or an Instagram reel or whatever, I think it's important to check your sources. Is this a person that's been vetted with experience or um, with a degree? <laughs> with uh, Do they have the backing to be speaking right. about this? Um, and I'm grateful for a lot of my patients who are so upfront and they come up to me and say, hey doc, I'm not gonna lie, I saw this on TikTok, but I wanted to ask you about it and really just check with me. Now, I, I do have to say, I am a traditionally Western trained physician. I, I'm an MD. Um, I think there is a lot of information within oh naturopathic gosh, medicine, yes. within Ayurvedic medicine, within Eastern medicine um, that I think is useful. The Where we get into trouble is when we negate one or the other. Traditionally, Western medicine has a ton of data. It is all data driven. And if we don't have the numbers, we can't make it a guideline for everyone in the population. Right. Obviously, medicine is an art and we need to uh, um, tailor it to the patient as well. I, I recognize that. But when it comes to generalized guidelines, within Eastern medicine practices, there isn't a bunch of data behind it. There, there hasn't been enough number of people proven to benefit from something specific in order to make it a general guideline for the general population, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. So, so it's important to recognize 
that about each field of medicine and also maybe find someone that's willing to marry a little bit of both. So for example, the way I practice, I do try to marry a little bit of both. I do take, I do look into data that is not you know, the traditional prescriptions within Western medicine and see if I can incorporate that as far as specifically for women's health. So, you know, if someone doesn't want to be on birth control, but they're having symptoms, uh, how can they naturally manage? And when I say naturally, I mean, without birth control or without an IUD, without Western medicine, how can you manage those symptoms? Um, is there an underlying medical issue that we need to look into? Um, can acupuncture help? Is there data behind that? Um, are there natural foods that you can also utilize to help with and, and combat these symptoms? Um, other scenarios is if there's nothing I can do, if I've run all the tests, done all the imaging, tried all the medications, nothing's working, I will urge my patient to find an Eastern medicine naturopathic physician um, to maybe see what they say. And they can always vet it by me if they're, if they're a little unsure, but to do their research behind what I say and what this other physician is saying as well, right? I don't need everyone to take my word um, <laughs> as a medical doctor. So I think it's important to marry the both and not um, and recognize when you're gravitating towards something because it sounds better, right? Because it's flashier, because um, something didn't work on this side, therefore the other thing has to be right. I think it's important to recognize when we catch ourselves in those thought patterns. Uh, again, we're human. It's okay to think that, but um, make sure that your decisions aren't dictated um, and to look at objective data. Um, and also recognize that you may be in a small percentage who, you know, the, the norm within Western medicine isn't created for, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's okay to have a, um, a crucial and upfront conversation with your doctor when something isn't working and see if they have any, if they're willing to think outside the box. I think that's really important. Uh, but yes, medical misinformation is something yeah. that us doctors are, are combating yeah. day to day. Yeah. Really, it's, it's, it's come to a point where sometimes it can be dangerous. Um, and it's important to, like I said, whoever you're talking to, to vet your source, vet the experience, vet the credentials, um, and make sure they're speaking from a credible standpoint versus an incredible one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's just, I think Nini um, can contribute to this because she does a lot of fact-checking in her journalism. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially, like you said, during um, the pandemic, I think, you know, a lot of the work I did was literally just fact-checking a lot of information that was put out there and then re-correcting it and then just being like, no, this isn't true. Don't follow this advice or that advice. So, um, yeah, it definitely becomes a huge mess to sort out and I think at one point as medical professionals um, it kind of was a thing where we'd be like don't google your symptoms and now it's come to the point where it's like please don't believe everything you see on TikTok or Instagram you know it's not yeah. the most accurate information I mean granted we don't know a whole lot about because it hasn't been researched or the data isn't there in the same way that western medicine is but when it comes to certain eastern practices um, like Ayurveda, for example, 
there's so much that we don't know um and, and maybe like a handful that we do know so it's it becomes really problematic when you have a lot of pseudoscience just floating around and yeah i think like you said best thing would be to check with your doctor and make sure that this hey is this something that um you know that i can follow or i shouldn't follow or what what is the deal what do you think about that yeah um and yeah. like Speaking in line with women's health and hormone health and all of that, I was just curious if you had any advice because, you know, a lot of times when we're going through these like um, disruptions in our mindset like, or, our, um, you know, the postpartum depression or antenatal depression or whatever it would be, I was just curious, like, what would a partner of such a person need to look out for? Um, just on the surface to be like, hey, I think something's off here. We might need to, you know, seek professional help because a lot of times I think we are so conditioned as like um, women going through pregnancy to be like, um, okay, you know, maybe this is normal, maybe it isn't. Like, we don't have enough information yeah. for ourselves. So um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a great question because, it, like I said, it does take a village here. Um, when it comes to perinatal health mm -hmm. uh, and mental health, um, it's important to recognize if your partner is um, feeling a certain way, sad, depressed, low motivation, hopelessness, guilt or shame, uh, preoccupation with you know, ruminating over something specific, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, um, uh, difficulty with concentration. Uh, if those feelings are lasting more than two weeks and it's becoming now debilitating, getting in the way of daily activities, it's time to seek help. Uh, I, I personally wouldn't advise waiting on something like that. Um, it, it's not the baby blues. It's this is clinical depression um, and I think there are I think it's human to feel up ups and downs it's human to have low days where you're just like you know what I'm really cranky and I don't feel like socializing I just want to sit and I'm a little irritable and regardless of the reason that is okay to feel it's also okay to feel happy and excited and ready to go conquer the world but again, when those feeling extremes are getting in the way of your daily activities, decision-making, jobs, relationships, that is a red flag. Mm -hmm. So it's important to uh, be well-connected with uh, your physician, uh, whether it's a primary care doctor, OB-GYN, psychiatrist, therapist, um, everyone may need to be involved mm -hmm. uh, at certain points of time, points in time when it comes to perinatal anxiety and depression. Um, as far as, I always love to call attention to PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is uh, seven to 10 days prior to your period when you're feeling extremes of depression and or anxiety where it is debilitating and you have your period. Oh, all gone, you're normal. Uh, that is not normal. <laughs> that when something is getting in the way of your daily activities, uh, emotionally, uh, when something's getting in the way of your daily activities, that is something to call to your doctor's attention. I think it's, we always, again, culturally say that, oh, you're just PMSing. Yeah, there is a range in symptoms when, uh, before your menses. 
um, you know, physical and emotional symptoms that are tolerable and still doesn't kind of drive a wedge into your day, relationship, job, etc. So it's important to recognize when these extremes are occurring. And even though you may not know what's going on, and even though you may not have a clear-cut picture, um, and it's important to track it and bring it to your doctor, like, hey, I'm feeling this. Like, I don't know if this is normal. I don't know if I need to be treated. I don't know what's going on, but I need some clarity. And we, as your physician, can give you an, or even as your therapist, your, your gynecologist, everyone should be mostly well-versed in this. Um, we're the objective voice that can say like you know what i think that's within the normal range versus mm-mm. right we, here are your options let's discuss what 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 direction do you want to go um so it doesn't even need to surround pregnancy it could surround just your normal hormone cycle monthly cycle right so as a bit of a follow-up to that then um whether it's relating to pmdd or someone who is pregnant and they're kind of having these significant mood changes or anything like that um, would you? What would you say is should be the first step? Um, should they approach? I know you you gave us a few options, like oh they can approach a physician um, or like you know go to the gyne, um, their OBGYN or uh, you know a therapist, a psychiatrist. I know there's so many options out there, but if somebody is currently experiencing that or they do feel like there might be something off, um, what should their logical next step be um, given that? If you don't have this village in place already, talk to your primary care doctor. Um, There are also now, especially after the pandemic, there are a lot of online resources that you can turn to. I just found out that the CVSs here in the U.S. have something called the CVS Minute Clinic, and they are offering virtual therapy sessions that you can just click into your CVS account. So again, there, there are so many options, but if you're like, this is too overwhelming, I can't do a Google search about like what to do, your primary care doctor. If you don't have a primary care doctor, that is your first step, please go get one. <laughs> they are your point person. They are the person to um, to ask when you don't know where to turn to. Like, what do I do? Who do I go to? Can you treat this? Can you not treat this? Um, ob guys also work as a primary care physician within the realm of uh, women and uh, maternal health. So they are also a great resource uh, to turn to if you're if you're feeling these things and you're unsure where to go. It's overwhelming to find resources. You could have one or two point people to turn to for resources. I think that's like a really helpful thing. And um, just to segue, you know, into our next and final, you know, segment talking about motherhood. You know, we talked about career, we talked about pregnancy, we talked about periods, hormone cycles, all that. But motherhood and just parenting in general, irrespective of your gender identity. Um, unlearning and relearning is a huge part that of, you know, parenting, I think, especially in the modern day. We have so much information on, like you said, like, you know, all these multiple parenting informers, a lot of these podcasts, books, like, um, it, recently we put out, you know, um, a episode on 
parenting and we collaborated with one of you know a parenting coach and everyone has such different styles and it's just one of those things where i'm just curious as a mother you know what has your experience been where you know maybe as a child you experience something you're like as a mom i'm not going to do this and how easy was it as a mom to actually not do that <laughs> um as a child i was a what they call now a big feelings child and my feelings were all my emotions were always on the surface and i was ready to go whether it's like super excited or cry at the moment, depending on how I was feeling. Um, and it was never received very well because it was misunderstood. And I had vowed to myself that I would never do that to my child. And I think we've been overall pretty successful with that because Gia is also a big feelings child and it takes a lot of patience when <laughs> your child is having a breakdown five minutes before we need to go to school. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's these things that you're just like, we're on a timeline, a time limit. And it's something that me and my husband both really um, have not only implemented, but we've made mistakes in as well. And we've also utilized the resources that we have on hand um, to help us with what works for our child, which is different from everybody else that we know. So I think it's important, again, to go back to going back to this comparison culture, really to remove yourself from that. Your way is not the only way, and it's also not the right or wrong way, right? So if someone else is doing something differently, if it's working for them and not harming anybody, thumbs up, cool. There is enough room for all the opinions and all the methods up here where we are. And it's important to recognize that it's okay to share that if someone's struggling like hey this has worked for me i don't know if it's gonna work for your kid maybe try it we did a lot of that we did a lot of trial and error and figured out what worked and what didn't every child every human is different and they receive um criticism differently they receive direction differently they receive you know put your socks in the hamper differently <laughs> and it's important to instill those habits but also um, create a safe space um, for our kids to express whether it's quote-unquote good or quote-unquote bad it's just having a safe space where they can express their frustration or, or, or happiness and joy and share that uh, within the household so that was one thing that I remember as a very young child um, thinking to myself that I would, I will never, I will never do that. And that I have stuck to. Mm-hmm. There are things that like, I will never yell at my kid, which I have failed miserably at. And, it, <laughs> and it's come to a point where, you know, me raising my voice just becomes comical. And now we have, I think we have um, adapted to almost laughing about it. And it's like, hey, mom it's not that serious like turn it down a notch and we can hang versus like true anger and frustration which also has has obviously come up within parenthood um but i think it's important to work in a partnership and really be on the same page as your partner if you're raising kids together um because it's confusing to get mixed messaging from you know two different parents and it's also very um overwhelming to have two adults coming down on you if you can imagine um and saying things with emotion that you don't quite understand as a child so 
an important thing that we've recognized is, you know, if one of us is already on it, the other one steps back. Um, Or if one of us is getting frustrated while we are, this is a scenario very recently where we're trying to teach math homework. They do math very differently now, just FYI. (laughs) Teach math very differently and I don't understand. But when you're trying to teach this and like there's frustration and anger and all this stuff is rising, um, to tap out. Like I'm tapping out your turn. Like I have been on this for 30 minutes and clearly I'm not getting anywhere. Just to recognize like you're human as a mom, as a dad, as a parent, that it's okay if you're not perfect at it and know your limits. And so that has helped us a lot. I don't think that was present when I was growing up. Um, Again, bandwidth, right? You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I'm just like curious, you know, because um, I think Gia has two wonderfully achieved parents. And what is your take on, let's say, you know, our culture in terms of academics is intense. And how are you as a parent in terms of that? And how do you level, you know, whatever you've experienced in the past? I have caught myself from being a tiger mom many a time. (laughs) That's how my parents raised me. That has been instilled into me. I've also recognized that the people around me are various achievers when it comes to like the traditional academics. Yet here we are, we are all successful. So that is enough for me to say you don't have to be perfect perfection never really leads to anywhere it just leads to like resentment and so um i and my husband i agree on this we want our child to try her best at everything if she doesn't show up at her 100 percent self which may vary from day to day we will be disappointed And that's the main standard we keep for her. If I see her slipping because she just doesn't wanna do something, that's not good enough. Versus if your best self, because you had a hard week, you had competitions or rehearsals, we were traveling. If your best self was, I can only pay attention for five minutes, so be it, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're human and we don't have this endless energy level this battery but if you're well rested and you have the capability to show up and all of our children all of our kids are smart right we don't they're the growth mindset the definition of it is you can learn right and you can progress despite Mm -hmm. what your baseline is so instilling that into Gia is so important and of course grades are important of course academic achievement is important but it's not the only measure right. of success i want we both want our child to be emotionally intelligent we joke that we just don't want to raise an asshole and i think we'd be really happy <laughs> if she is a kind um empathetic individual that in itself will i know carry her far Right. Um, and I want her to have good insight and develop confident insights that will pull her far. The numbers, I think, will come. And again, it doesn't have to be perfect. I, um, 
although Sanjay and I have achieved a lot, we didn't go to the top schools in the country. I didn't have scholarships. I was not a straight A student. I struggle with test taking, especially standardized tests. Um, again, it's a matter of what tools and techniques do you develop right. to get there and to get to your goals. And so that's what we're trying to instill into Gia. And we're not quite surrounded by that all the time with our you know, friends and family. Uh, and that's where, that, again, that comparison culture yeah. comes in. And we stick to what works with us, for us, and for our child until it doesn't. And we have to pivot at some point, which we'll have to do as she grows and kind of, she has a strong voice. I don't want to say gain her voice. She has the voice. But as, as, as she gains her mature voice <laughs> with growth and development. And I think I never really thought about this before, but it's only after having a kid. It's like, do I want him to not voice his opinion over here or do I want him to give respect? And of course, like sometimes when he's rude or he just doesn't like keep eye contact or something, of course he's like so young, but I do notice that at times he is being like, you know, just bratty. <laughs> and you do, you, you yeah. do need to protect them at those times. And I think it's like a really difficult thing because um, the term gentle parenting, I think is so widely used these days. And it's so widely misunderstood as well. I think the intention of it, um, and so many people are taking that term and running with it and they are mocking essentially like you know getting down on your child's level and you know trying to talk to them which is not what gentle parenting is it you know and it's just like there's so many watch boys on social media that I think you don't especially with the reels format you only get like the 60 second clips to understand a vast concept so you look at like the 60 seconds and you're like oh now I'm an expert because I've seen like 10 reels on it but just our listeners especially, I just want you to know that you can do the research in the right way rather than looking at social media and reels, you know, there are better ways. So yeah, I just And that goes back to using social media with a purpose, right? Instead of oh, yes. uh browsing and consuming these parenting tips, and you're like, Oh cool, that's a good idea. Oh cool, that's a good idea. Ergo, the other side of that, the spectrum, is bad or wrong because I saw this one person talk about it 20 million times. Uh, so really, again, like you said, using it with a purpose and doing your research on it instead of dictating your decisions based off of a 10-second, you know, little blip on social media. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where um, you are second generation, right? Like in America. Um, do you think... Um, like you probably have a circle of people who are also second generation. Like, do you see any generalized differences between first generation immigrant parenting and second generation immigrant parenting? Like just culturally. Absolutely. Um, everything that we just talked about, I think about parenting styles, creating a safe space, um, not, uh, you know, the quote unquote tiger parent, um, really kind of backing off of that idea, uh, being a tiger parent in different ways, meaning like, you know, asking your kid to show up at their hundred percent versus, um, less than, uh, versus strictly academic numbers and achievements, um, and really more of like a holistic view. Um, how can you be a good person in this world that's driven and motivated and insightful and empathetic versus here is my kid on paper. <laughs> here are the numbers. Here are the grades. Here are the listed activities. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it, you're not, you're not 
putting in your application for life, right? And yes. At certain points, yes, we will get there when it comes to like academic achievements and accomplishments and college jobs and all that. Because I say, say that because my nephew is going through that. So <laughs> yes, at some point you will have to like, you know, put yourself on paper. But um, again, from a parenting standpoint, yes, huge difference. And I think at least within my circle, I, I am proud to say that I've surrounded myself by friends and family members who think like me. Um, and I do stray away from those who I I see traits that I don't feel comfortable with. Um, so the comparison culture is a no-go for me, period. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think it's natural for us to say, oh, you know, that kid dealt with X, Y, Z better than mine. Um, is that a, but again, instead of dri- using that to drive your decision or reaction, really being self-reflective and saying, okay, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Like, did I miss the mark on teaching my kid something? Is this an opportunity for a conversation? Or is this like, you know what, kids are kids and she didn't really do anything wrong and we're okay and we're going to move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's important to self-reflect, which I see more of um, with our generation. And I think we're also teaching our own parents, right? Because they also, yeah. at least in my family, you know, we the grandparents do spend a lot of time with, with the grandchildren and... um there are certain things that, again, I've held, I've held boundaries for my kid. Um, like, no chatting about body types and what her body looks like, period. I don't want to hear about weight. I don't want to hear about hair. I don't want to hear about anything. Like, that's not healthy. If there's a true medical problem, you will talk to the pediatrician about it. Um, and the placating, like, don't cry, don't cry, don't be upset, don't be upset when there's a valid reason to cry or to be upset. Uh-huh. Um, now, when it's invalid, yes, go to town, like, figuring out with your, with, you know, my child and teach her, use it as a teaching. But, um, uh, I think that is a huge difference that I think we are hopefully helping the prior generation be open to and being upfront with them about what you feel comfortable with and uncomfortable with is very, very important. Now, I understand. Every family dynamic is different. Every parent's going to react differently. It's different when someone lives with you or near to you versus farther. Right. Um, right. I understand the nuances of that. So again, my advice is also not a one size fits all. Uh, that's where these personalized like one-on-one sessions and coaching sessions really uh, play a huge role is let's figure out what's best for you in a personalized plan. But I think it's okay to use what we are learning as an educational standpoint and a conversation um, for all generations and all backgrounds. I just have like one question on my end and then I'm going to like pass it over to Nimi if she has any other questions. So for me, I'm just curious. I don't know if this is interesive or what, but do you still believe in like, you know, like when you take lunch boxes to school and things like as you were kids, um, you know, if you have like the standard Indian lunch versus when you pack your kid, do you teach them to embrace that? And do you still order when you're proud of care for school? Wait, say that last question again. Do you still oil your child's hair for school? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, growing up, yes, in the beginning, I did take traditional. I, I like Indian food, and um, yes, yeah, I would take it to school until again I started to get made fun of, smells, stain my nails, whatever. Um, so as I got older, I strayed away from it. Um, nowadays, I don't know 
if it's particular to where we are, we live in a very diverse area and a diverse community. Um, I, I have GF old and new classmates coming up to me asking me when I'm going to be coming in for um, the Bali celebrations and holy. So our kids are learning um, a variety of cultural holidays and what goes along with it and what's traditional about it. So alongside that, I also use this opportunity to drop off little, like, you know, Indian sweets that are homemade or Indian inspired sweets or fusion sweets. There's so many good resources oh, out yes. there. Now. So many <laughs> wonderful people that are putting out options for us to choose from. And, uh, uh, I think it's more culturally accepted to do that. Um, and Gia walks proud, I think, with whatever she likes and whatever she um, finds unique. And I think nowadays, again, maybe it's cultural, maybe parenting, style, I don't know, but uh, uniqueness is celebrated and questioned in a good way and shared from an educational standpoint. So yeah, sometimes she'll take you know, she, my daughter loves dessert. She has such a big sweet tooth. So during Diwali time, we had all the amazing sweets in the world and I made a couple of things. Um, so she would take that proudly to school and share it. And if someone doesn't like it, you know, she's learned to navigate when someone's like, oh, uh. um, but her teachers also have played a huge role. So in first grade, um, her teacher taught her, taught the class of phrase, don't yuck my yum. Meaning, if I bring something or say something or I'm eating something, it's good to me. I like it. I'm enjoying it. If you don't enjoy it, cool. Fine. It's, it's okay. I'm not forcing it on you. So she even uses that on us now. Like if I, if she's eating something, I'm like, oh, that sounds gross. And she's like, mommy, don't be off my head. And it's an important lesson that I think as a society, not everywhere, but most larger, diverse areas, at least here in the U.S., I think we're all moving as a society towards accepting a variety of backgrounds and cultural um, importances. And yes, I still oil Gia's hair. Yes, I put it in her braid, and she goes to school, and she loves it. Um, we do different serums. She loves the smell. She loves the massage. Like she loves the whole thing. Um, and I don't hear complaints that I don't. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think like um, so. I live currently in Plymouth in the UK, and it's. We're only just now starting to get a lot of Asian community people coming in through immigration. But when we first moved here, like we couldn't find a huge Asian community at all. And I was surprised that this Diwali, like when I was dropping myself at nursery, I saw all the teachers wearing these and I was like, what's happening? Yeah, and yeah we're celebrating Diwali today. It's a five day festival. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> 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 I just didn't know that you guys were celebrating it or I would have put it in like a Shirwani or something. But you know, yeah. it was just one of the things that I was like, this is amazing. Because as kids, we didn't have that, you know, at all. And oh, yeah. yeah, so that's the end of my 
questions in this Vinny um no just adding on to that like here I think um well like Diwali for example is now a public holiday in New York um we see a lot more representation in media in general and I think that's also played a huge role in kind of just generalizing our experience so it's just amazing to see how it's all coming together like um people are more familiar with and it's not in an in a sense of like alienation either it's more kind of like oh let's embrace it it's part of this diversity that we all belong to and um yeah it's glad to hear that plymouth has more um of a desi community i visited them last year and i was traveling from india to visit them i remember she asked me to pick up like spices from india for them um is there anything that you want our listeners to know in general about you know the work that you do um your platform yeah or if they want to get in touch um you know set up a session or anything yeah absolutely so i'm primarily on instagram at dr forathana dr forathana um my website should be launching here in the next few weeks so if you're listening after December, hopefully that's on. Um, so for us at And um, I do have a link to book a free discovery call if you're not sure what coaching is about or if we're a great match. It's free, 30 minutes. Um, and the purpose of it is, again, to describe to you what coaching is with me like and um, to see if we're a, a good connection, a good match, because I think that's important. Um, and you can book that through Instagram. If you still can't find it, just message me. I'm an open book. Um, you can always email me at florasinhamd at gmail.com. I have weekly newsletters that go out. So um, I always give little mindset tips and tricks of, uh, you know, just how to navigate daily life because life is hard. And, and that, that's the norm. Um, I was just telling someone yesterday, a patient, that when you wait to coast, like that's when you'll be disappointed. Yes. So get excited about the challenges of life. Some may be easier than others, but um, it's important to build your toolbox and, and gather personalized tools and techniques to to combat whatever is coming your way and get comfortable with, you know, with the fluctuation. It's okay. There are hard seasons, there are easier seasons, but um, yeah, and then if not ready, if you're not ready for one-on-one coaching, um, I'm going to be coming out with some courses, hopefully in the new year, that you can do independently. Um, and then I have a lot of tips and tricks, just the quick reels like we were just talking about um, on my Instagram. I talk about boundaries, burnout, uh, gender norms, um, lots of different stuff. So uh, hopefully, you know, inspiring and helping people. 